0: Welcome to the Monsters and Treasure Podcast, where we talk way too long about a subject, but only give you the best parts. I'm KR King of D&D Homebrew, here as always with Daniel Norton of Bandits Keep. How are we doing today, Daniel?
1: Well, it's about 50-50 agreeing with me, so I'm doing all right. Guess that means it's time for another call-in show. All right, so we have a new caller this month, Merck or Michael from Merc the Meek Podcast, is a brand new podcast. You guys can check it out. And these came in through from Spotify for podcasters. It looks like we might have two groups here. So let's start with the first one. It's uh, listed as Scarce Magic.
2: Hello, Daniel and KR. I just got done listening to your episode about making magic items uh, more scarce and found that pretty inspiring. That's good ideas. Just, uh, I mean, instead of taking away magic, you can put an expiration date on it essentially through your charges, like you were saying. So that that's cool. I've also been thinking about trying to add weapon durability or you know armor durability and making magic stuff more durable, but still breakable. I don't, I mean, keeping track of that might be a little tricky, but that's another way of handling it. So, yeah, just uh neat ideas that I will definitely try to start implementing, so thanks well, it
0: interesting because we have talked talk, talked about the idea of expendable magic. I think what he's saying scarcity i can't I think that was the topic
1: he was like talking. wands and stuff with charges
0: well, and again, durability, as he said, do you always get into like every time you hit a magic shield, do you have to see if it breaks or something like that or if it's a twenty hit if you have a system like with critical hits or something that can get a little tricky if you're not doing that for regular weapons do you start doing that for magic ones and that kind of thing so i don't know how that might work uh i but again i like the idea of limiting as we said in there uh why not have magic be expendable or uh you know not because because all it says, starts to do I and mean, that's what they try to do in 5e the attunement rules right to limit hmm. you from handing out just i've got 400 swords which one am i going to take today sort of thing but uh again i think New player players that I've run into they 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 were always the thing they're always saying in the five e world is where's all the magic they want more magic than I give out personally um, I'm not sure I've done all the time systems I played it's all just been ha- laying around in piles but that seems to be the consensus of modern players whereas long ago we did have great items as we've talked about sentient items and this and that but it was just a different kind of sensibility so. Yeah, I think limit your magic and use expendable magic out there. Once your players get used to it, they'll be very appreciative.
1: Yeah, I think it was that was one of the things I bounced off of early on in 5e is that when I first started playing and I didn't realize it was supposed to be like I didn't get the attunement thing and I was used to playing, you know, from the 80s. So I right away jumped in and my players had magic items. And by the time they got to like third level, all their slots were filled. And then it was like, well, I, do I keep giving them magic items? I can't use them. You know, it's like, what do we do here? So I don't love the attunement rules. I think I found that didn't work for me. I am much more of a fan of let them have as much as they want, but at the same time, you know, be uh, have things that expend, et cetera. The, um, the durability, I've seen that in games. I find that might be a pain to track. And I think that there's a, it's called Viking Death Squad. It's a game that Runehammer put out. They do something like that, and maybe Jason will call it because Jason knows about something. But I think what ends up happening is you hit the armor, and eventually it breaks. But in that game, as soon as you have no armor and you get hit, you're dead. So I think having like two things to track—armor hit points—and then, which is what I'm gonna call it—and then uh, character hit points—might be a pain. Uh, but you could do something like whenever somebody hits a critical, there's a chance that they break your armor, and maybe the the shield gets a or the magic armor gets a saving throw. There's lots of ways you can do it. I find those things like the magic armor and stuff to, to I don't worry too much about it <laughs> personally. I mean, I don't really have a good solution there. So it'd be interesting to uh, to hear what people think about that. Like as far as like having like seven suits of plate mail, but I think they don't come up as often. You know, in, in my game, uh, my, my uh, zero E game, everybody has a suit of magic armor at this point that can wear one. And they've even given some to like the, some of the henchmen, but I think that's okay. They're They're eighth level. They're very powerful. It's not really a big deal for me.
0: Well, and technically, it's just a, unless it's an item that allows you to fly or, you know, scry all around the world or send out lightning bolts or whatever, if you've got a magic armor, it's just a plus on your armor class or a, mm-hmm. a negative in the old system. So it's just, that's just part of the the freight of, you know, uh, you just get those items and it lowers that and you're harder to hit. and that, That's what makes you a champion and all that. So it's just a game mechanic thing at that point. There are items that, Totally disrupt everything. Again, look at the deck of many things stuff. You really play that the way it's written. That could be a devastator to a group because you're you're stuck in an alternate plane and you can't. You need a
1: wish <laughs> to get out.
0: And I'm always like, Yeah, really? That, yeah. I'm just gonna draw the months and months of playing this character, and then I'm gonna put it all down to a card because it's exciting. But yeah, but I may. <laughs> Having said that, I have had things like that with I do differently. I'll have like stones you place or whatever. But there might be something like and the players cannot resist. As I've talked I did a whole video on the Deck of Many Things. They can't resist.
1: The thing about Deck of Many Things to me is that uh, well, first of all, I used it in my favorite five E campaign, and and I used the one E version of it because it's more <laughs> it's more deadly and it, it, with mixed results. And I and I did it just as the rule state. Before anybody draws a single card, everybody must decide how many cards they're going to draw, and then they have to do it. And everybody at the table chose to do it. And funny enough, I would say the balance was, which I think the deck isn't actually done this way, but the balance was actually fairly positive. In fact, one player drew four cards, and all four things were amazing for them. Other players got, you know, chased by demons. Luckily, nobody got uh, sucked away because that that could be a suck, you know, a terrible thing in the the campaign. But at the same time, then that's the story, right? You have to accept. So, like, if you're running a linear story where the the players have to kill the big bad within three weeks or whatever, don't put the deck of many things at week one because they're going to probably have a side quest as soon as they get that thing. So, you know, you got to think about the campaign you're running. I was running a sandbox. It was, you know, they were, I think, maybe fourth level. And uh, and again, we thought, oh, that's going to break the game because like one person got the 50,000 experience points or whatever. It didn't. I mean, people caught up. And it wasn't really a big deal. It was like not really an, uh, an issue, you know, uh, because the way the experience points are designed in in, in D&D. Now you can't use that. I, I've actually seen people do this, which I hate. And this is totally going sideways. So I'm just going to throw it out there. I've seen videos promoting the idea that you do decimating things and you pull out all the bad things. But you just play oh, it up terrible. like it could be bad. Yeah, it's like well, this. This I don't advocate for. So I know that wasn't no, part of the if call. You're but use I just it, yeah. you
0: have to have the yeah. risk of total yeah. annihilation, and then yeah. uh, if you're going to use it again, is,
3: okay.
1: Yeah. So, anyways, that's a different thing. So we got two more, three more calls. I think these are connected, so I may play all three in a row, depending on how it goes. But let's see. Akr and Daniel,
2: this is Michael. <laughs> I just got done listening to your. Uh, extravaganza your you know your anniversary extravaganza and uh yeah i enjoyed it it's great that you guys have gotten a year under your belt and uh it's also funny as you mentioned (laughs) the guy that doesn't like the sound of his voice which was me uh and then you uh joke about how he doesn't have a podcast yet well i i do have the podcast now but um I think that's what's so great about like the, the Anchorverse. There's so many OSR creators, and there's that community, uh, especially on Audio Dungeon Discord, um, that's so welcoming that I, I felt like, hey, why not give it a shot just to join the conversation? I don't like hearing the sound of my voice, but I like participating. So thanks, guys. But I also think that's one of the reasons, KR, why everyone agrees with Daniel, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, because there's already so many OSR people doing podcasts and listening to podcasts, and they know Bandits Keep, uh, the, uh, they're going to be more drawn towards that, I would assume, than, uh, unfortunately, your take on things, K.R. Um, but I do appreciate it. Um, you know, it's it's just uh, it's a matter more of play, play style. Of course, you're not wrong. It's It's just... This is kind of where we go more than uh, more towards your take. So, I mean, I, I play 5e or I played a lot of 5e um, and there's some stuff to like, but I don't know. The uh, the OR Star stuff is just more appealing. So keep it up and take care. Oh, and lastly, I don't think it's necessarily people wanting to hear their own voice on the podcast. I mean, that could be part of it. But I think uh, people wanting to hear your response to their questions on the the podcast. So, you know, uh, listening. And I I mean, I I like listening to everything. So I wouldn't just like, oh, they answered my question. Now I'm going to stop listening to that podcast episode because, I mean, um, it's it's fun to hear all of the engagement, whether it's uh, Jason calling in and you guys responding to that. Or you know the questions that I had, um, or anyone else. It it's fun to kind of revisit those topics that you were already talking about, adding a different layer to it. So, yeah, uh, Colin episodes are great uh, as well, just because it adds more to the conversation. So, I think that's it. <laughs> Take care.
1: So uh, it's funny. I mean, I think we were joking about it, but the, it, I I agree with the. I'm going to talk about the last part first. That I love calling episodes on shows, but I think it helps if you're a part of the community, right? The the more you listen to the podcast, the more you start to hear voices that you've heard before, and you start to actually get, uh, you know, like, oh, I I know that caller, even if they don't have their own podcast. Although it seems like slowly but surely everybody ends up at least you know dabbling a little bit. I know I did. I was a caller uh, for a long time, and my understanding is Jason was also a caller for a long time before he became kind of the hub of callins that that uh, the Nerds RPG Variety Cast became.
0: Yeah, I was not a huge, I mean, I've listened to podcasts over the years and, and certainly listened to them and also watched YouTube channels and stuff. I was not uh, a huge listener, and I did not call in very much at all before we started this. It's interesting with the OSR thing because, as I remember, we were trying to come up with titles for the channel, and I had suggested Monsters and Treasure, and then you used the picture of the old three original books, and, it, you know, and, of course, people are going to think it's going to make perhaps be about that. And I am not actively right now. I'm playing Pathfinder and Five E, but the irony of it all is I played all those OSR type games, and I remember when they came. A lot of stuff that came out, even the OSR games of the '80s, which is a whole different. It's interesting the the, the transition after after 3.5 really I think spurred on a lot of stuff. But there were alternative games in those days, right? Different systems and whatnot. So I'm perfectly willing to be the outsider guy. You know, if you're watching a movie. And there's one guy that's the rebel wearing the motorcycle jacket and comes along, and then there's the guy that's a captain of the football team, and he's like, "That's Daniels, because that's okay. I'd rather be the rebel out there with my jacket going. Hey, man, you and your O.S.R. friends." <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I I used to like the sound of that guy's voice until he started agreeing with Daniel. That, <laughs> I, don't, I don't care.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I I obviously I I had a. a... There was also an ongoing campaign in which I already told you about in the beginning where I would go on the audio dungeon and be like, make sure you call in and agree with me because uh, I would try and irk K.R. But uh, it's funny because usually we we actually say very similar things. So, um, you know, just because, yeah, we- uh, you know, but Kara's like he's moved on. He hates the old school games. He played those back in the day. He thinks they're terrible. Oh, yeah. And now he's all about <laughs> Pathfinder. So so that's why we'll get uh, some calls from Joe about Pathfinder. So you're going to have some support there. Yes. Joe
0: Richter knows he's out there somewhere going, yeah, Yeah, Pathfinder. Exactly. That's how you'd say it too. Okay. That
1: is exactly it. All right. So moving on, we got, uh, we should, uh, I'm going to jump into the, these came via, those came over the Spotify for podcasters uh, link, which you can use to uh, call in. Then we also got a bunch of emails. The first one's from Ryan. They had written in asking, I guess, about something that I had talked about, which I did at GaryCon. I'm not going to go super deep into it because I think we may have already talked about it. But just in case, because this message is still here in our inbox. Basically, if you go to Tim Kask's YouTube channel, he talks about it a lot. But the idea is that you, every player puts gives you two ideas. It, it's like a It could be a Red Dragon and a Hershey bar, right? Whatever it might be. And then, you know, so it could be anything. And then you take them all and you spend a couple of minutes and you create basically an adventure, which ends up being very gonzo <laughs> uh, because of that, with the stuff. Now, the first, my first experience with it was Frank Menzner did it, and he get, he fully credited Tim Cass for, for doing it. And he did it the way that I did it, which is he took everybody's stuff and just kind of created an overarching story. So I had six or seven players. Everybody gave me stuff. I looked and combined things that I thought made sense and quickly made what made sense to be a story. The way Tim Cass does it is he'll take, like, if KR gave two things, the first scene, he won't tell you whose stuff it is, but he'll just make a scene just out of KR stuff. And then you're supposed to guess, like, oh, whose stuff was that? You know, that kind of thing. But it's fun. It's a great improv exercise. I wouldn't necessarily do it all the time. What's nice about it is that the players know you're doing it. So it creates this whole idea where it's like, we know this is a very loose session that's being created in the moment. And I think it's really fun for a, a breakaway from kind of your standard D&D
2: yeah okay. and as i
0: think i said when it's it's great for like a one shot or if you're doing it at a mm-hmm. convention or people are gathered together and this is just a fun although that carries its own weight of not weight but people don't can act more gonzo as you're talking about when it's just a one shot or whatever mm-hmm. but that could be liberating too by the way it's not necessarily a bad thing to just say i just want to run something and just have total fun and play it whatever and I'm not going to worry about the consequences.
1: And I'll just add that I would recommend if you're going to do this, that you use a simple system. Because again, people are going to give all kinds of stuff. So you need to be super flexible. You don't want to, to be looking up all kinds of rules. And, you know, people feeling like I built my character for this. And then over here, we're doing this. So you need it to be as simple of a system as possible. So I used original Dungeons and Dragons the way I did it. But, uh, which is what kind of Tim Cass uses. But I was going to say, I in my campaign, I have something like this. Every once in a while, I'll have something and I'll say something like, all right, Your character, uh, and I got this from Altan's Door, which is where we started the campaign using that module. There's certain achievements they can do. And then I'll say to them, I'll say like, okay, uh, player, create a monster for me and just send it to me. And I will add it to the campaign at some point. And when you see this monster, if you, you know, deal with it in an appropriate way, like interact with it, beat it, whatever, then you'll get something special from it. So it allows them to kind of create something in the world. But I do it very carefully, and I've only done it a handful of times, so I think that can work. Uh, and again, but it becomes very meta with that one player because they know it's their thing to do. So I don't know; it depends on your table and how people would take that.
0: Yeah, and the immersion factor. Although again, immersion—that's another one of those <laughs>
1: things you
0: go on. What does that really mean?
1: But anyway, yeah, we'll we'll do a we'll do a whole season we'll on do immersion. A thing
0: on that. All right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. So let's go to Jason next. Look at the, are these three messages. It says uh, a one shot. Episode calls. I recorded these last week. I don't remember what I said. Okay, so that's cool.
4: <laughs> hey guys, Jason here. So I'm listening to campaigns versus one shots and just started. And early on in the episode, Daniel says that discussing the two, you know, is D&D the right game because D&D is designed for advancement. And and then he says, although we've received some kickback for advancement, you know, and I want to just push back a little here and say, I disagree with Daniel. I'd have to go back and listen to your episodes, of course. Somebody probably called and said, no, advancement's not important. And maybe that's what he's saying, and maybe I said that. But to me, advancement is kind of important in any game, but some games are designed... I don't think you need game mechanics for advancement. So I do want to clarify my position. I mean, one shots are fine, like you say, but in a campaign game, I do think advancement is important, advancement of that character... But I don't think that has to be mechanical advancement. I think Classic Traveler, or maybe a superhero game, where the characters don't mechanically change, but they change as far as relationships, they change as far as what they own, they change as far as prestige, they change as far as alliances. I think all that's really important. So I, I want to clarify maybe a little confusion on the advancement part. So. Now, let me go back to the episode.
1: Okay, since I'm the one that said it, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was referring to Jason, and he did say that uh, he quickly was like, what about Traveler? And I would actually say, just to be, uh, you know, argumentative, that you do, and I'm no expert in Traveler, but as you play Traveler, you get money, right? That's kind of the point. And when you get money, you get equipment, and equipment makes you more powerful, and you get a spaceship. So that is mechanical on some level. I know he means levels and such, but... I think that that is still mechanical. Maybe in a superhero game, that's not the case, the way he's talking about it. But I'm not sure I'd want to play that type of game long term. I mean, what do you think? Like, if you're playing, let's say, Superman, and you never change, you just go out every, uh, you know, it's episodic or however you do it. Like, would you like that kind of game? Well, I mean,
0: Superman, you know, and I know there's the Marvel superheroes role playing game. I have not played it. Um, So I I don't know what... What happens to your character to change? But as you say, Superman never changes. So what is, does he like take over, get his own planet or his own space station or alternate dimension? I don't know how the game works, but what can he gain as the game goes along? Even like, let's use the traveler example for us when we, we love to start traveler campaigns because we did it when the game came out and then we played it for a while. And for us, it became a little bit accounting in space, right? Because you're just, because first of all, you're very vulnerable. If you get hit by a blaster, you're dead. Mm-hmm. so as i remember i mean again i might be jason's yeah. the expert on this and he might come in and go oh no 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 you're not necessarily dead but for us combat in that game was deadly so we just went around with spaceships and m- made runs you know between things or went to planets and explored them and found minerals or you know set up mining things as i remember I, you know again it's a long time ago but it wasn't didn't have quite the thing of D for us and so because I had a friend who loved that game and he set up this elaborate star system and we played it a lot and we were just like, eh. So, and was it the advancement? Was it the setting? We like the fantasy medieval setting. I don't know. But uh, to me, that campaign, the whole idea behind a campaign isn't just to kill the big bad villain. It's to go into the world and get your your power base or what what is it, prestige, your uh, Hmm. renown... But it's also look at the rules. The rules have these levels, and people look at them. I can see my characters. Every time they level up, they're very excited. They're looking at their character, what they're going to do, this and that. It isn't necessarily, now I have a castle, and now I have all this big pile of money, or now I can run the town council, which which can be really fun. But a lot of players just want to look at their character sheet and go, look at my new abilities. So you just have to balance that, and it doesn't come into play in a one-shot environment, right? You just have your character, and off we go. In a campaign... How do you sustain interest over a long period?
1: One hundred percent. No, I, I, and again, I don't disagree with Jason, even though he clearly disagrees with me. (laughs) No, I mean, I could probably play a game over long term without my character getting more powerful, because I think for me, I could do that. I don't know about superhero game, but I I feel because I think that would just be, I don't know, I feel like that wouldn't be exciting over time as, and it wouldn't be a true campaign to me. It'd be more like we're gonna play superheroes today. Oh, we'll play superheroes next week, and it would just be it wouldn't. You know, whatever. I will point out, I'll say that Marvel superheroes, which is the only one I know about, you do gain something called karma, I believe. And what it does, it's based on actions that you do. And with that karma points, you can use it to, like, modify roles. So you still gain something by playing. I just, I, I. don't remember exactly how it works. So, again, there is this, this, like, thing about playing games where people want to feel like they're getting something. And that's, that something could be in-world. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a fun way to play. I'm just I've never played a long term campaign where you never got anything mechanically in the game different. Like you always played exactly the same, you know, and it was just about relationships. Maybe I should play a game like that. If uh, somebody wants to play a full on let's play character role playing game, I'll give it a shot. I think it could be kind of fun. There's two more here from Jason. I probably won't dive in in the middle. I just wanted to answer the part because I was definitely the one that said that we got pushback because I remember that he immediately posted the Discord, what about Traveler, you don't advance? But I would argue, being argumentative, that you do advance mechanically because you get stuff in the game that you can use. It's not just about relationships, but anyways, I'm not a Traveler expert, so uh, call in and let me know I'm wrong.
4: Okay, I finished the campaigns versus one-shots scenario, scenario, show, and I kind of agree. I think the simpler rules do lend themselves more to that and there are games other than D&D these days that are better if you're going to do a fantasy game probably honestly for one shots. That said, I think you could play a more complex crunchy game in a one shot as long as the people know the rules. So maybe Phoenix Command's the game that everybody knows the rules to and likes to play it's super crunchy, so you're not going to just pick it up and play it as a new player, somebody that hasn't ever played it before. Aces and 8s is a great example, another Western game. It's kind of complicated, the, the combat sequence, till you get used to it. But once you're used to it, it seems like it's pretty good. So you can definitely do Western one-shots with Aces and 8s, once everybody's familiar with the rules. The problem with using it for one-shots, if everybody's not comfortable with the rules, are you waste a lot of time reteaching rules during the one shot. So I think that's also something to be considered. If your group has played a game for you know, tons of sessions and has really come for the rules, it's a lot easier to pick it up and use it as a one shot. Now that's separate from the idea that D&D is designed for advancement, but I think it's important in the discussion of simple versus complex games for one shots. You know, funny enough, when I decided to start up my solo game, I want this to be a longer term thing. So I went to Rule Cyclopedia and Beckme, the Menser Basic set, the 1983 D&D Basic set, for that, with the idea of running a campaign. If I wanted to do a, sol- a one-shot solo, I wouldn't have gone to those rules. I would have picked a totally different rule set, something you know, that didn't even worry about the idea of advancement and tiers of play and, and all that other crazy stuff. But I kind of have a desire to go all the way through and maybe have even characters become immortals at some point, you know, a year or two down the line, just burning through the TSR published modules. Um, but if I was just going to do one shots here and there, and actually I've thought about this, if I was going to do one shots and still play the TSR modules, would I use the TSR D&D rules or should I pick up a different rule set? just to burn through those modules just to try them and I've actually considered I might be better off using a different rule set, a simpler rule set a lighter rule set a more modern rule set if I'm just running one shots to get through those modules, not in order but just to run the modules, as standalone modules, so yeah it's interesting the thought process there and obviously I haven't totally figured it out yet well, I, I think
0: his point is well taken about if you're going to do a one shot and a simpler rule set, which might have been what we were talking about in, in our, you know, it's hard to remember what we were saying, but, um, I, you know, I, I, think if you know, like an aces and eights or like, let's say you know, there might be people that boot Hill is a little confusing to, or whatever, if you really get mm-hmm. into the rules and look at the optional rules and all that stuff. Um, but you, everybody has to know it versus we, I just did a one shot with those guys with beyond the wall the the osr stuff really simple and of course already as i'm reading these rules i'm thinking what about these skills how come you're not listing any how do i use this (laughs) my my kr mind started to go what And then i just sat back and we played who cares we're just doing stuff and then joe richter who ran it was really well like versed in just i'd say i have an investigator skill and he was like okay and he didn't go like where'd you find that because i they say make it up right and I had enough experience in playing role-playing games. But if you had somebody that had no experience and they're just looking, they go, what are, What am I supposed to do, right? Because it's not written down. So it, if everybody's familiar with a really complicated system, for sure you can do a one-shot with
1: it. Yeah, I, I think Jason made a really great point, point. Like when I was playing 5e as my primary system, which not to say 5 E's that complicated, but let's say compared to some games, and I wanted to run a 15th level, you know, one-shot We did it. I mean, we were able to sit down and just play because we played 5e every week. So even if we weren't playing a 15th level, which I did do a 15th level, uh, we all played evil characters, which was a a one shot because I would never play evil characters in the campaign, which we've talked about before. But and, you know, we were just like, let's do evil characters. And we did a one shot, at 15th level, and nobody had a problem. We just dropped in and did it because we all knew the rules. Even if some of the skills we hadn't messed with yet, we understood the game well enough to be able to play it. But yeah, you wouldn't want to play a game that was more complex Let's say you're running swords and wizardry white box, right? So you're like literally like old, you know, three little brown books, super basic, and then drop somebody into a 15th level, you know, 5e or Pathfinder or one of these more complex games. Or like I was playing uh Top Secret with Jason, and we're both familiar with Top Secret, but Top Secret's crunchy, right? So if you wouldn't play that for a one-shot unless you were either willing to dig into the rules, which we were, because we were kind of playing around with trying to use everything and we kind of made that part of the fun of it, or you just know the game really well. So right, obviously that is a factor uh it uh, we probably didn't mention so so thanks jason uh as far as Uh, the other thing he mentioned just want to throw it out there he is jason did announce on his podcast uh i think it was the first podcast of the year which system he's going to use for his long-term campaign that he's running solo so if you're interested in what he did come up with he had just announced it so look for the first podcast of 2024 for jason
0: you know it's interesting because i went to this game store when i first moved to back to michigan and these guys were playing a, uh, a module where everyone started at 13th level. And they were at 14th. So I sat down at the table. And they said, well, you got to come up with a character. And he's got to be 14th level. So I had to sit there for like half an hour. And coming up with a 14th level was a sorcerer. And it took me half an hour. It's 5e. You know, it's a lot of stuff. And I'm having to figure out now at this level, would I have done an ability advancement or maybe a feat or this or that? And they're all playing. You know, and I'd never met these people. Right? So I'm trying to do this. And I did it, and I came up with my character, but it was like, you're not going to sit down in that group if you don't know how to play five e, uh, you know, you're, you're not going right. to be able to do it, right? I wasn't able to, you know, and then and then, and then we went through the module, and it was okay. I, I again, at that level, it just becomes this, He had all these things had anti magic shells and stuff and oozes because they have all these immunities. It, yeah. Obviously, whoever designed it knew if you're going to do this for 50th level characters, you got to do this kind of stuff. So. But, man if you didn't if I didn't know the rules I would have just been like well I can't I can't come up with it well you're all playing I'm scribbling away you know trying to come up with somebody mm-hmm. and uh that was tough
1: thanks Jason we have so uh, surprise surprise Jason is the uh most pl- prolific caller to the show so we do have a couple more from him and uh let's move on to his next one expendable magic
4: hey guys Jason here happy Thanksgiving I realize this won't be played to I after that probably well after that but I'm calling you on Thanksgiving so I'm going to wish you a happy Thanksgiving just listen to your expendable magic item episode and I agree expendable magic items are great all for it but it's kind of funny because Daniel's you know going after rechargeable swords that go that work twice a day but he's all for magic swords and magic swords typically have abilities that are like three times a day you can do this um I realize they're slightly different things, but, you know, you have to see the kind of irony there, right? Anyhow, though, and, and poor KR, poor KR's players. Man, you're developing a story and then forcing a story down their throats? I'm, I'm just messing with you. I really enjoyed the episode. I thought you brought, brought up great points. And I also think it's an interesting idea, though, that KR brought up, that you have to do what's good for the players, whether they like it or not. With with the idea of not forcing the story down their throat, but the idea of the low magic world, you know, whether they like it or not and that kind of thing. And I I don't know. That's probably an episode on itself. You know, should you do something that you think is good for the players, even though they're not really into it? I'm not saying that very well, but you know what I'm saying. Hopefully you know what I'm saying. If not, reach out to me and I'll try to clarify. Anyhow, take care. Talk to you soon.
1: We did not reach out, so we have no idea what Jason was talking about because it's the first time I've been hearing this message. <laughs> but yes, yeah. you are 100% right that magic swords do have powers that are usable X number of times per day. And it, it is certainly uh, me saying one is good and one's not. But I think the difference is that a magic sword's ability generally is something like detect secret doors or maybe give you extra damage for a couple rounds whereas a wand might throw a fireball which is a much different kind of thing and I think that's the reason why if you had a sword that could throw fireballs then I would want to have a a certain number of charges before it disappears
0: (laughs) yeah and I don't remember how I was ramming a storyline I guess the storyline of a low magic setting or something I don't know I'd have to look back but
1: you do um, that kind of stuff
0: you know I so again I'm just trying to sort of say this as I'm trying to remember, but I, I like the low magic setting personally, because I don't like it when you can go to the top, the biggest city, let's say, and go to the magic bazaar and just buy whatever you want, or the, the players will come to me with rules about, well, this is uncommon and this is rare. And what does that mean? They think of it just as cost. Right. And I'm saying, well, if it's rare, it's extremely rare, right? It's hard to find. And so you may have the money to buy a Picasso, but if no one's selling it, because there's only and and that's maybe not even a good example. Something that's really rare is in a museum, and you can't even buy it or something. You know, so how do you how do you do that? It's just how you want it, how you want your world to run. Uh, again, in five e they have that attunement thing and whatnot, so that can be something that controls that. I don't know, but I just love expendable magic is great. Uh, and and again, with swords or weapons or armor, you know, like a helm of seeing, you know, or scrying, if you could just, how are you going to, you're going to limit it at some level. So you just have to decide as a GM how you want to do that to, for your own game.
1: Yeah, and I think too, at least in my mind, again, not thinking about 5e and attunement and only having so many things is I like the idea of a magic user at high levels having like multiple wands that they draw upon and use. So like, I don't when I say, oh, I want wands to have a limited number of charges, but I expect a high-level wizard to possibly have a wand of fireballs, maybe a wand of lightning bolts, maybe even a wand that does something else, like a paralyzation, and they'll pull out whichever wand is useful to them at that moment. And I don't have a problem with that. That's the kind of high magic that I like. When you're at high level, that's the kind of stuff you have in my world, but I'm also running OD&D, which is a much more high magic world, even if it's not a high magic the player characters can cast all the time it's a different kind of high magic let's say 5e 5e is high magic because everybody on the corner th- goes press agitation constantly uh you know whereas in od and d spells are more rare but magic items are more plentiful if you play the game by rolling on the charts anyways the only question you always got into
0: with the high magic uh, uh two wizards if they have all these wands, are they looking to take them? You know, they're, they're, they're very powerful NPCs, right, with these incredible abilities. Do you have parties of high-level players that do you get into combat between groups where you have magic items blasting back and forth? And that becomes a thing for the GM to, ha- you know, have to run all these NPCs high-level. And then the other thing is if you're out there as a wizard with all these wands on, do people see you as a target? Because you have all this magic concentrated in this one spot and we're going to get that. That guy becomes mm-hmm. it's like, it's like walking around... Bags of money on you, you know, all the time, and and right. I know when that guy walks around, he's got fifty thousand dollars in his pockets. In a world of the wild westy sort of D D world, would, would people t- take you as a target? Would you be very nervous about that? that you know, but but if you right. don't do it as a GM, if you just say, nah, no one pays any attention to you, you know, who cares? I just that's always what I think about when I think sure. about uh, the, uh, once you become very famous or very rich. In the real world, you have bodyguards, you have a lot of buffers between you and the real mm-hmm. world because you know that you're a target, whether it's just a crazy fan that wants to think sh- that we're going to get married or whatever, and they so mad you rejected them, they want to stab you or something, or just, you know, kidnapping or whatever, you know, that people mm-hmm. separate themselves when they have something
1: that a lot of people are very interested in. Right, so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of answer it as best I can. I mean, I, I, th- my thought is to you kind of answered it on some level. At that higher level, I think the intention of the game, again, I wasn't there in 1974 and I can't say, but if we look at it, I think the intention of the game is that you wouldn't have necessarily a group of six 10th level characters adventuring together. What you would have is a 10th level character with a bunch of henchmen and hirelings and lower people that were with them. And you get this. The reason why I say this is because when we look at the encounter tables, you look at when you encounter a wizard or a high level cleric, it says they have one to six you know, fighters of this level and one to four magic users of this level with them. So they're like apprentices, right? That's that's kind of the, what the game world is trying to build. Now, did player characters adventure in groups of... T- probably. I mean, you know, again, what 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 may have been in the mind of, you know, Gygax and Arneson is not necessarily what happens. So to to answer the, or would they be targets? 100%. Your, your high-level wizard is not going to just walk down the street with wands, right? They They come out with those wands when they think there's a combat. They defend their tower with that. They go after the dragon with that, but they don't walk around like that. They would probably throw some kind of polymorph self and not even show up in places as themselves because they would be a target. And I think the main difference between a wizard or let's say a high level fighter in D D and a celebrity is that the celebrity when they're nobody, if you will, nobody, I mean I hate to use a term like that, but you don't know say like not known. And the celebrity when they're famous is still just as vulnerable as they, you know, that's why they need all the bodyguards, right? You're wizard is not nearly as vulnerable when they're 11th level with wands as the as the celebrity is you know relatively speaking so i think you got all those factors in but but yes in my world even though i have high powerful creatures and again somebody would have that equipment they don't carry it around with them and they do stay secluded in towers and they have bodyguards and that's how i run it 100 percent. yeah i i don't i don't I don't do the thing where what you get in AD&D where like you go to the, the tavern and like the bartender is an eighth level ranger. Cause I'm just like, wh- what? Like, why would the bartender be an eighth? That's just dumb. Even a fourth level ranger would have had so much cash. They wouldn't have to work as a bartender. Like that just is a ridiculous, but you know, they did that for, oh, I'm breaking out the air quotes, balance, <laughs> you know, to fight off the murder hobos, which I don't do in my world. I keep it real. You know, most people working in bars and stuff are zero level people and if the player characters go in and murder them, well, then that's when the Baron sends the heroes after them. It's not everybody yes. in the town. That's is how you their have level. to yeah. do it. Yeah,
0: I agree with you 100. I might have a second level fighter that made a big well, score yeah. and started a tavern, but that's about it. If he's, yeah. he's not going to be fourth or fifth or tenth, I mean, why would you be sitting? A, well, but again, this this gets into the whole the verisimilitude problem with D d Which is okay. In reality, you'd, you're a level fighter and you'd be the Lord of the Keep and you'd be a king or something like Aragorn and sit around and handle bug He's on my property line and this, you know, how, what are the tax collectors doing? All that kind of stuff. And that might be fascinating to you. But what I found is players are like, well, when do we go kill monsters? You know, when right. do we go to explore the ruined tomb? When are we? I don't care about the tax law. So you throw that out the window
1: with the player characters. All right. Here's one from Jason. Words matter.
4: Hey guys, just listened to "Choose Your Words Carefully" episode. Great, great episode. You know, it's funny. It's really hard when when you think about it with role-playing games because we as humans perceive so much—not just with our eyes, but with our ears and our nose, and and maybe even six senses, right? But when we—it's you can't, as a GM, it's impossible to relay everything a character takes in when they walk into a room. So you really have to be careful what you pick. And like you say, if you just pick random details to make it interesting, players are gonna focus in on those details. But you, you if you try to downplay something by not mentioning it, then it might get totally missed and you know, obviously you shouldn't build your build your revenge around them finding something, but it could really ruin their day, like you say, if they miss that fancy magic item because you're trying to be low-key. So it's a really, you know, it's a tough tightrope to walk because you can't emulate real life in that way. You can't give them that experience they really have walking in that room. Uh, I, I know people talk, oh, immersion, of course you can. And, well, no, you can't. Because even if you've got a group where everybody's closing their eyes and imagining the room, if you have eight players, you're going to have eight different versions of that. Well, you're going to have nine because the dungeon master, everybody's going to have a slightly different version in their mind, right? So yeah, it's an interesting type. Well, it's like and Daniel can tell the story. When we were running, when I was running Cyberpunk, and they had, can they had cameras built in their heads? He was thinking a big camcorder on the side of the guy's head, like in Hellraiser Three, where I was thinking, you know, Cyberpunk, it's like a, this mini camera in the guy's eye, so you didn't even see it, but. You know, without understanding the tropes of the world and all, we picture totally different things in our minds. Anyhow, great episode.
1: That is true. And I think the camera on the side of their head would have been cooler. But we did actually look it up in the book, and it is a tiny little camera that's hidden inside the eyeball. So, I don't know. Giant camera on the side of the head. I guess I don't know what cyberpunk is, which I will fully and readily admit.
0: I have the cyberpunk rules and I've read them and I do feel like as I remember right you you have things built in there's all sorts of they have a term for it when the things are built into you whether they're fake you know an artificial arm or thing so I believe that's that's how that worked but he's exactly right in terms of you're describing a room to the players and as a GM if you know that the painting on the wall is critical to something you're first of all going to mention it but then Is it a room totally covered in dust, let's say, and there's 10 paintings on the wall, right? And you just just say there's a bunch of paintings. And they say, I want to investigate the paintings. Now do I got to describe all 10, even though only one's important? Well, if I have one, I say, I don't want to do that. I'm going to have one. Okay, why is there a painting on this wall, right? Right away, they're going to go. And if you just put that in for flavor, they might still say, this painting, something about it, right? They they, they go away kind of like, hmm, why couldn't we figure that out, right? So do you then do the old, there's nothing of significance in here. The painting doesn't mean anything. Well, I don't want to really, I want I want a little bit of what, what's the deal. So it's always tricky when you set these things up, like how you describe them.
1: Yeah, and that is why I think a lot of times people will defer to, and why modern systems often defer to roles. Because it eliminates the need for the referee or the Dungeon Master to be able to convey that in a way, you know, it kind of takes that out of the uh, the equation. I like the challenge of doing it the other way, but I wouldn't forego a role if I felt like it was important. You know, it kind of comes down to what, how do you want to, maybe that's in the podcast, but when you want to make, you know, uh, when you want to defer to the dice, right? Like, would you know that one of these 10 paintings is interesting? Should I explain all 10, making it a riddle to see if the player can figure it out? Or would their character possibly know And I can just make a die roll, Right. And this is something that we can do depending on the situation. But yeah, I think that what we're probably talking about and what I generally say is that, I mean, I like to set a baseline and then I go from there. So if you're in the dungeon and I you walk in and I say, it smells musty in here, it's wet, there's dripping, you know, it's dark where your torches are flickering. And then you, you enter into a room and I say, the walls here are dry. It's dead quiet. That means something, right? Because now you're, 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 you know the setup, right? And I will occasionally, as I'm running, mention again, oh, you enter another room, walls are dripping as usual. You know, that way people remember, because they'll forget if you just say at the beginning, right? <laughs> and I will say things like, it strikes you that this table, in this
0: furniture is quite in good shape for what you've seen in the thing. And they immediately, now, I'm just saying it strikes I'm not rolling. A perception check. Right. Oh, you had no idea that the furniture is... I'm just like... You are so hyper-aware when you're in a dungeon as an adventurer, in my mind. You are looking around. I'm giving them the benefit of that doubt. Even if, as players, they're totally goofy or not really, when you watch them, you think, well, they're not paying any attention. I'm just going to assume that they are adventurers in this world that know something could jump out of the dark at any second and kill Mm -hmm. me. So I am looking at everything. So uh, when I describe something, I'm taking that as my baseline. And then the rolling thing, yeah, that's the mechanism. You know, what happens in the 5E thing is everybody just says, can I get a this roll or can I get a that roll? And I'm always sitting there as the GM thinking, if you just go and we we'll talk this through, I'll tell you stuff. You know, you don't, they always want to know if someone's lying or they want to know, you know right. and, I, and I get that. But there's just a thing of like, in the <coughs> real world, if you meet a criminal, to a person that's up to no good, hmm. oftentimes you detect that very easily. You're at all sophisticated world. Maybe I don't remember being a teenager. Maybe I was very susceptible. But very early on in my life, I started. You just you could tell somebody look, they're up to something no good. I didn't need to make a roll. Or maybe I did. Maybe you could say, Well, you were making a roll, KR. You were making one and you made it. And Susie cream cheese over there that has no idea what's going on in the world. She blew it. Or Freddie Cream Cheese. I don't know. <laughs> Susie Cream Cheese is little Frank Zappa thing. So don't say I'm saying women don't have this. I mean, I have to edit that. But you know what I'm saying? Like you, I just give you that
1: because mm-hmm. you're in the world. You, you you're aware of that. We have a death call from Jason. It uh, says, "Congratulations!" Hey guys,
4: congratulations on one year. You're doing a great job. I wish you many, many more years. And Daniel, let KR get a word in, Edgewise, please.
0: Well, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Jason, for saying what hundreds out there. The 137 that are this is their favorite channel are thinking all the time. <laughs> Please let KR say something, but you know I don't know if it's going to happen. We'll see.
1: The, maybe this year if if KR is, if TR is good, uh, I'll let him have a couple words. <laughs> <laughs> all I, right,
0: he's always right after all.
1: Yeah, I don't have to. You know, if if I say more than you, I'm more likely to be right. That's really what it is. All right.
0: <laughs> Was that the theory? No, yeah, I mean I'm that, getting it. Now.
1: That that's it. All right. So his next one is called Tears of Play. But let's jump just to break it up a little bit. I see there's a high-level play from Joe Richter. So let's do that one first because I'm sure that's connected. All right. Did you know if this other one came in first? Which one came in first? Because it's two from Joe. Uh,
0: high-level came things? in first.
1: Okay, good. So we'll play that one first. Here we go. This is Joe Richter from the Hindsightless podcast. Yo,
3: what's up, Daniel? What's up, KR? Just finished listening to your latest episode about high-level play And yeah, it can get a little wonky, right? So as you guys might know, I am currently running a group through the Wrath of the the Righteous Adventure Path for Pathfinder. And we are halfway through. Um, The players just hit 12th level and 5th Mythic Tier. And Mythic tiers are basically almost like another whole level. And so in the story, the PCs just met with Queen Galfrey, the queen of the country that's getting most threatened by the demon invasion. And Queen Galfrey is a 15th level paladin. (laughs) And so that made me wonder after listening to your show, I was thinking like, well, why the hell didn't Queen Galfrey get involved sooner, man? So you guys unintentionally inspired me. I don't know if I'll ever have the time to do this. But now I really am tempted to run a solo version of Wrath of the Righteous, starting with Queen Galfrey as a 15th-level paladin and just runner starting from book one by herself and seeing how far I can get. (laughs) Because I think that'd be wild and fun. (laughs) Anyway, so thanks for the inspiration. Take it easy, boys. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, everyone. Peace out.
0: Well, it's really interesting because Joe... was going through this module and realizes the issue that we talked about was where were these high level characters when (laughs) some problem was occurring the players at first level. So I have these bandits that were harassing in the badlands. And when my characters were first level in the campaign I'm running and they, they had the battle with the bandits and they had to meet them. And then they got up to enough level and they beat them. Well, why come they didn't 10th level guys all just come out of the town and just kill these guys? Well, because then you don't have a game, right? (laughs) So, but (laughs) It is interesting because you just we make all these justifications of well they're busy in town they're not worried about these all well, these trade route the bandits so people are going to go to these guys and go how come you are not getting rid of these bandits right just like just like in real life well, what were these pirates in the Somali you know or whatever or the Red Sea And they go out and try to get them so you just it's one of those things where if you're going to have these high level characters in the, in your world they're just occupied with other things and not. Yeah. <laughs> not the pan whatever this module she's going to be just killing everything in the first few books right because it's all designed for low-level characters so I, I i'd love to hear how joe does it but it does seem like a little bit of you know it's going to be an unfair fight for a while
1: well i wonder right because i wonder how important action economy it would really be pretty fun and it's funny because i saw i didn't watch it but i was I scrolled through youtube the other day about trying to find it and somebody posted something i think it was for 5e and they said um I, I I ran my tenth level group, I think it was through a first level adventure and I was like, oh, that's interesting because I wonder right like uh, how that would work. But I wonder though with a single person action economy could come into play so that yeah, I'd love to hear about that too if Joe ever gets a chance to do it that that'd be really really fun. But yeah, I think sometimes you just have to hand wave stuff Well, she was doing queen stuff right so she she couldn't do it <laughs> but anyways uh that's super fun. All right next we have sexy bards from Joe.
3: What's up, KR? What's up, Daniel? I'm calling in because I disagree with both of you. No, just kidding. I don't disagree (laughs) with either of you because you're just stating your opinions. I'm calling to defend the sexy bard. I love it. I absolutely love it. I have a girl in my game who most of her characters are sexy characters, but now she's playing a sexy bard and it's, Awesome man, because in Pathfinder, bards get some really, really weird spells. Some very, if you think about the morality of them, some very sketchy spells. And her using those or trying to use those spells in combat is awesome to watch. Like, bards have a spell that basically makes you take off all your clothes if you fail the saving throw, and having her do that in combat to try and make the bad guys spend a bunch of time taking off all their armor. It's awesome. It's genius. It's not for everybody, right? If you don't run the type of game that has those types of themes, those adult types of themes in your games, then yeah, the sexy bard is no fun Uh, because it's just going to make people uncomfortable. But given the right players, given the right dungeon master, it's a super fun trope. It's awesome. I don't know where it comes from, though, right? Because I'm yeah i i I'm a little younger than you guys I think, so maybe I'm from you know like five years down the road of reading fantasy books but yeah I can there's a there's a guy in the Wheel of time series from the first book who probably comes up in later books I can't remember right now named Tom Marilyn or something, and he's basically a bard and kind of a ladies man type of bard but Is that the first ever appearance of that? I don't think so. I just don't know where it's coming from. Anyway, I'm rambling now. Take it easy. Sexy Bards rule. Peace out. Well, it's interesting because both of us just said
0: we don't like the trope that a bard has to be this seducer. Certainly that you can be. If you want to play it that way, I have no problem with that. But it's just when everyone expects that from the bard or they're frivolous or they're somehow, because we were just saying that there could be a, Bard, who's serious collector of, uh, you know, lore from around the world, but doesn't necessarily, and can really play uh, serious, you know, I th- always think, I always come back to my age, Star Trek, when uh, Spock is playing with the neo-hippies in one of the episodes, and he's playing very seriously, but he's really good, you know, and they're really, hey, man, you really know how to work that instrument, you know, and he just kind of looks at them and after the song and leaves, because he has no emotion, he's Spock. So he's a Bard in that situation that is not that. But if you want to play a sexy, you know, the seducer character, and again, the adult theme thing, it does depend on the group. If people get offended, I find uh, my players always tend to be raunchier than I am as a GM only because I'm worried about people being offended, but they do stuff all the time and chuckle away at that kind of stuff. So uh, I don't have a problem with that. We were just, I think, talking just about that's the stereotype.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that right. If you're gonna play a sexy character, I mean, I've definitely played characters that were sexy, and I think it can be really fun. And actually, I was I was loving the idea of a spell that makes you take off your clothes because, of course, you could definitely take that as more of a, uh, a sexual or adult theme. But that's great. There's a guy in plate mail armor, right? And he he comes at you, and, he, and you're just like take off all your clothes, and now he's naked, right? And you can basically stab him with with impunity. And I like that. I like that as a spell because I think it's really cool. I mean, obviously, you can play it up in a way that's uh, that's different. So I might actually have to try to use, do that with a charmed person in the future and see if I could get, get away with that. Have them take their armor off. Yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> I think somebody
0: somewhere along the line did a thing, illusionist or what they were, but your armor is getting incredibly hot. Right. And the thing about that is everybody knows, oh, there's heat metal spells. So yep. I'm going to have to, and it's an illusion. Your sword is suddenly glowing and very hot and you drop it, right? Because you mm-hmm. think someone's heating them. And then you, they have to, break the, make the save or however it was. And those are the kind of things that I think that was an illusionist guy that was doing that. I can't remember, but he just took the illusionist and he kept thinking of things that people would be from, it would, it, it wasn't just like, oh my God, the worst big, there's 500 trolls all around. Cause the experienced player would be, I think this is an illusion. This can't be wrong. right. Right. An experienced NPC, but something that like that, where you're like, oh, he's, you know, I shall heat your sword, you know, and then suddenly it's glowing red. You're going to drop it, right? Because you know they have that ability. So those are the cool things for fooling people or whatever. Like like I said, the trickster, the bard, that kind of thing. It can be really fun.
1: Yeah, I really like that. So, yeah, I, I think part of – I think, now again, like you, I forget sometimes when we come back to it. I think the main thing was that why does everybody have to play? Just like why does everybody have to play the rogue is like, oh, I lost my whole family, and now I don't talk to anybody. I sit in the corner. You know, mix it up a little bit. Play different types of bards, play different types of rogues, but play what you like at the end, right? That's really what it comes down to. Okay, we got a couple more calls here, kind of getting close. Uh Here we go. Tears of Play. This is from Jason again.
4: Hey, guys. Great episode on the tiers of play, on how the game has to change as you go up in higher levels, especially in a and d type game. I think d d handles this really well. You know, in the AD&D Dungeon Masters guide, it talks about, the cost of living expenses are 100 gold pieces per level. And that is your cost of living expenses. So once you pay that, at that point, you don't worry about paying for the meals at the tavern because all that's included, right? So at that point, you don't worry about these nickel and dime expenses. If you're buying a new set of armor or something, maybe. But like Daniel said, once you get high enough level, you don't even worry about that. But that cost of living that... Hundred dollars per or hundred gold pieces per level also encourages adventurers to get out there and still find gold because they got to pay their share and that's part of that renown and status is I mean if you're a druid or you're a ranger, then yeah you're not spending or a monk or a paladin you're not throwing money around town probably but all the other classes are expected to spend as they go up in level you know if you have a, a tenth level fighter a lord and they're a miser. You know, they might say, yeah, he's a great fighter, but he sure is a cheap ass, <laughs> right? Where if, you know, so they're expected to spend, like Daniel said, they would buy extravagant stuff. And and so that's kind of what you see in that 100 gold piece per level living expense per month. So I think AD&D does a good job at that, w- with that way. AD&D does it well, and the Rule Cyclopedia does it well, although it's more structured. I've got to show... Where a guest joins me on the thirtieth of December, twenty twenty three, where we talk about the rule cyclopedia and we go into this a little bit. But the rule cyclopedia has a section in there about balancing encounters that basically says, yeah, as you get higher level, you might just want to ignore that encounter you rolled up with a couple ogres because it's a you, you know your your mid to high level party is going to wipe the ground with them. And, and the rule cyclopedia even says, you know, that might be fun as a joke every now and then because your players are so powerful. But for the most part, you, you you know, you don't want to have encounters that are, are meaningless or just a waste of time. So uh, apparently, at some degree, TSR got on, on board and agreed with Daniel on that. So there you go. Great show, guys. Keep up the great work. Talk to you
1: soon. See, even TSR agrees with me. Yeah,
0: and, and I, I didn't disagree. <laughs> no, it's humorous because I'm like, yeah, you got to hand wave those things, right? The the one thing I would say about what he's talking about here is, what you want to not necessarily do is say, okay, I've random monsters from point A to point B. Like right? they they got to go through the mountains to get to the the castle, mm-hmm. so they go into the mountains at the. You either have them this deadliness level and stick to that, because if if you say there, I don't. You roll up. There's a chance for three ogres, and the players now are a tenth level. Okay, I'll just make it a higher level thing so that it's a more interesting battle. Well, okay, then you're constantly, you know, it, it, it's why not just say like what I think we were saying, which and and Jason is saying the ogres see you and they just run away because you're right. too deadly, or you just say okay, you just killed them. Well, do one, two, three, you killed them, four, five, six, they ran away, or something like that. Because I don't want to sit there and run that, but I don't want to necessarily go okay, uh, it's twenty ogres or something because now we got to roll that out and it's like mechanical. It's just like, I don't know. So that's what I. The things should be more interesting too at tenth level than just the first to through fifth level battles that are just for your own survival. You know, anytime you right. run into something, it's like, will I live? At tenth, it's got to be something more interesting. So, but it's also when you're traveling across the the idea being tenth level is I can go from point A to point B and not be as nervous as I was at first level.
1: Right, one hundred percent. And I think what's interest what I generally do is let's say you had a pass, a mountain pass. And you know there's ogres there or whatever. You you set that that encounter up or that that difficulty at that level uh, above first level. Like and then you won't have these problems. Like you make that encounter a third or fourth level encounter if it happens. You know at least a chance of it. Then the player characters the first few levels are having to deal with this. They run at first level. Maybe they try at second level. They they finally win at third or fourth level. And then fifth, sixth, seventh level, they just walk through the ogres. Run, but now maybe they're eighth level, and they're like, you know what? All these people are getting attacked by these ogres. Let's go to the camp where there is thirty ogres because we can beat them. And then that becomes a fun fight that the players create, not that you're just increasing the number of ogres because suddenly they know that the player characters are higher level. Like that, just that—that's what I what I generally do with that kind of stuff.
0: And there is always a game mechanic element to it. I'm interested. I have not listened to the. I got to listen to Jason's podcast now about rule cyclopedia. Um, I will say in terms of money, there's an interesting part of that. I have a, I'm running a Pathfinder online campaign, and there's this guy whose character is a former is a disgraced nobleman who mm-hmm. was caught stealing and he had to run away from his, his thing. But he plays his characters. I always stay in the finest rooms. I always buy the most expensive wine. I give it away, I'm constantly break. I sit at my table with whoever and he's building up all these bills with people. Then when we go out and adventure, we find stuff. He comes back and he pays his bills. But he never has any money because his character spends every dime. He's right. a spendthrift embezzler. He's always thinking of scams. And he did steal from... It was an NPC. And it was very humorous the way he did it. So I just found that to be very interesting. Playing this this rake, this you know, a person that leaves debts in his wake, and he's a nobleman. But it's fun to hang around with him because he... We're like these very simple characters, and he's like, "Oh no, no! I shall get you all a suite of rooms, you know." And so we're all saying we're all taking baths and stuff that we haven't bathed in weeks, you know. And he's got perfumes; he puts. It's just very humorous because it's like, I am trying to use the money that's generated in a way that's not just buying magic items or whatever.
1: Right. No, I agree, and I, and I and again, what Jason said, I think is good. OD and D does one percent of your experience points or yeah, you know, 1% of your experience points per month, you know, is a rough guideline. And I like that. I like the idea that there is some expense. It does make people keep trying to adventure, I guess. Uh, but also it, uh, it just, you know, it, it that way you don't have to think about it, you know, at a certain point, like if somebody's like raking them over the coals, like was happening in my current campaign, the Thieves Guild was hiding them. Then I actually throw a number up. But really I have this, like, I basically have a piece of paper that has all this money that they have. Like, You know, and it's like, oh, whatever. It's not really consequential at this moment that they're spending this money. But I do make a moment, right, where they, it's like, well, yeah, of course you can stay here. But, you know, we're going to have to protection fees of 100 gold pieces a day or whatever. Then they're like, really, 100 gold pieces? You know, it's like, they have the money. But, you know, it's just that little thing you poke the players every (laughs) once in a while. But generally speaking, when they stay and stuff, it's like, well, whatever. Like, we're not worried about that. It's like, okay, you guys are going to journey across the land. All right, you get horses and rations and this and that, and you go. Like, I don't nickel and dime them on that because I do the... OD&D thing, like I said, which is 1%, 1% of your experience points per month is your general living expenses, and that covers that kind of stuff.
0: And I all feel right. like, generally speaking, people don't track at those high levels expenses yeah. and stuff. Maybe there are people out there that track it all the way through, and every, but I've played in a lot of different deals with a lot of different, very meticulous, wargamey people. They were not keeping track of how much it would cost to live because – except at a very general level. Like if you said, okay, I want to buy a castle now. And they'd say, well, how are you going to pay for that? So that that kind of thing. But generally, right. just how you're going. We're just doing adventures, and we're getting this and getting that and finding this. And and then the upper tiers of level, as I've talked about many times, I don't think campaigns, in my experience, can go there unless you purposely just are like, okay, now we're 15th level. Two weeks later, now we're 60. you do it that way, sure, you can get to 20th. But then then where are you? What what's happening, right? And I, I don't know. I've not run in those campaigns. I run just a module once that we got to fifty, but that's it.
1: Well, I feel like those. I mean, unless you're doing an adventure path like what Joe's doing, a high level adventure path, which is very interesting. I like to to listen to his podcast to hear about these like crazy like combats, and all the stuff that they're doing, these negotiations, right. and like at one point they had to like rebuild like the. I might be getting it a little bit. Longer. They, have to like, they have to like spend time like rebuilding areas that were destroyed by the demons. It's just interesting, right? Different stuff that you would wouldn't normally do. So that's kind of interesting. I think it's really fun. So if you guys want to hear about that kind of stuff, check out that podcast. Okay, so let's move on to the final call. I, I I'm hesitant to play this call to be honest with you. I, I don't. I don't. Uh-oh. I feel like it, I feel like the it's controversial. Um, Uh Oh, so we You know, if you guys
0: agree with me, yeah. If
1: if if you're if you're listening this podcast, you might want to stop listening right now. I am telling you right now, this podcast here. But but this message. But if you are strong of heart, uh, keep listening. Or smart.
4: Hey guys, Jason here. Really enjoying your latest episodes. I don't have a whole lot to say because I pretty much agree with you on everything except for Daniel's irrational dislike of AD and D's rating system, which is the greatest thing ever. Um, I would love to hear you guys talk about obscure games. Uh, Bushido is one that I've had since (laughs) the eighties and um, we were going to spin up a game maybe five years ago and it didn't happen online. I'd love to play it sometime, but yeah, obscure games would be great. Love to talk about that. Anyhow, keep up the great work and I look forward to what you do next.
0: So Daniel, your irrational uh, hatred of the rating system. Uh, has finally come back to bite you with uh, with our resident uh, call in expert. So just uh, it's, it's good that it's not just some random you know Yahoo person. It's uh, Jason. But uh, as I'm saying this, I can't remember what the rating system is. But
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. so so in AD and you're supposed to train to go up levels. Okay, so yeah, every, every adventure uh, or session, I guess. The Dungeon Master is supposed to look at what the player car- players did with their character. Like let's say you're a thief, and you decide how thiefy was this thief? Did the thief pick pockets? Or did the thief engage too much in combat? Did the thief steal from their party? Did, you know, all these things that are supposed to be the thief tropes. And then you rate the ca- the player on how well they played the thief. If the rating is not the maximum rating, then when it comes time to train, they have to train additional weeks because they need to be more thiefy, So it's kind of like you're telling your friends, well, you know what? I don't love the way that you played your fighter. I don't feel like you were fighter-y enough because, you know, you didn't run into combat fast enough or you, it's like, I just find that to be incredibly silly. And as kids, we did the training. And I always say that. I don't mind the training. I don't mind the cost. I don't love telling my friends, you didn't play your character correctly. So you have to pay more for training. I find that to be really weird and off-putting and it would turn me off and like i it, it, it to play in a game where somebody did that like so at kids we just always gave ourselves the best rating we were like oh of course that was a great way to play your thief even though maybe Gygax wouldn't have approved but like Gygax isn't sitting at my table
0: well it's so funny cuz i came into ad and d a little bit older and now that you're saying that of course i do remember this discussion because of course we immediately said i'm sorry jason but no i'm not i'm not rating people on their cuz then they're going to be like are they going to start doing outrageous things? Are you for? Oh, I have to go for these traps and do thiefy things. Oh, it blows up in poison cloud. Now you're dead. Well, at least I didn't have to train more. You know, so, I mean, the objective is not to, how can I say this? There is an element of social, uh, where you're thinking about what other people are doing or looking at you to see how how well you're doing or something. But in reality, in d and D, I I feel like you're just trying to stay alive. So Right if you do thiefy things, if you're all alive, you've won that, that round, that, that yeah. session, if you're all, you know, and then what do we get? And like, yeah, we just do standard training and all that stuff. But, and we did, cause I like the idea of training. I always thought that was a great mechanic because it said it brought some realism to it. Whereas the yeah. endless running that my players always want to do. Now I'm, you know, it's just, again, though, it's coming at it from such a different sensibility because men-at-arms, you know, uh, <laughs> chainmail. war you know. Uh, we knew that campaigning, Napoleonic campaigns, you could only go so far. People had to rest. Uh, there was attrition. If you forced guys to do stuff, their effectiveness would go down. All sorts of stuff that pointed towards, and yet people had to be trained. And in sports, if you don't practice, your team sucks. A big part of, it's not the game every Sunday or whatever. It's, What is your practice like? What is your Mm -hmm. training like? That's what will determine whether you win. So how do you emphasize that by having a mechanic for it? So that's okay. uh, But yeah, the rating system—it's interesting. i I, I,
1: maybe Jason's being a little facetious. I don't know. Well, he is because I always I always rail against it when they talk about it. (laughs) I think from Jason, not a bunch of words in Jason's mouth, but I think Jason likes the idea of trying to play AD and D. You know, by what's written in there, and he's like, "All right, so we'll do it this way, and we're going to try it, and we're going to do it." And he's kind of very um honestly approaching the rules right and not going we're not going to use that because I don't like it right he's like let's see how this plays out so I give him a hard time about it that's the reason why we have this back and forth about it but I don't love it I find it to be really weird and I would defend I think in the early part of this conversation before I picked it up and started reading it I was like we use that it was great you know when I read it I was like ah. the other thing about it too to me is that I think AD&D or all D&D really well maybe not 5e but like the older versions especially they are designed to make you do the thing, anyways, right? Like a magic user who runs forward into combat all the time with their dagger instead of staying back and casting spells is likely going to die. You don't need to give them a lower rating because they did it. It's like they're just not going to survive. So, and if they do, good on them. I mean, what, to, what, what you know, what, 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 uh, what, what's the big deal that the magic user survived, right? It's like you. Yeah, but like the thief isn't going to run forward and be the front line of combat if they can avoid it. They're going to be sneaky. They're going to try to backstab. That's to their advantage. So to add that extra level of I'm going to rate you because I don't think you did it well enough is just weird to me. And I think that's really uh, where I stand on that. I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, uh, tell people they're doing it wrong because because uh, they do it, but I would have not played a table. Like if I literally joined an AD&D group and then after the first session, they were like, well, you know what? we're going to give your thief a B because you didn't, uh, you know, steal enough. I'd be like, Oh, well, I won't be back next time. Thanks. (laughs)
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing about systems that like inspiration and stuff Mm -hmm. for me, meta currency like that, everybody gets an inspiration point at the beginning of the session. And there we go. I'm not going to sit there and go, Oh, Daniel, maybe laugh again. Because every time I give Daniel a point, the other players that say, "Oh, that's because they do their podcast." And you know, he gives Daniel yep. points for everything. So then I don't give points to Daniel because I don't want to have that favoritism. And Daniel's sitting over there going, "You know, I could use an inspiration point once in a while." So I, I, I get rid of that because
1: I just don't want to play favorites or whatever, or play or have that impression. Of right. I, sometimes you can re- you can remove that from the game, which which is something that I go for. So that's just my my thoughts on it. I'm whatever. If you want to use it, if I was trying to run AD and rules as written and as best as I could, uh, I would probably give it a shot, but I would almost guarantee that I would rate everybody a, cause there's no way I'm going to tell my friends that they didn't play their thief well enough. That would just be weird to me.
0: Well, I'll have to do a session on the iconography, the icon iconic status of these old rule systems where you play them as written, because right. like if I played Bushido, uh, I don't know the rules very well, so I'd read them and try to play the rules. And then after I played it for 10 times, I might say, you know, this rule about extra armor, it's too clunky. It doesn't really work. We got rid of that. So we never approached the rules as like we're going to assume. They come out with a rat all the time. And, or they have a new a new addition. is isn't just a money grab. It's also like these things didn't right. work. Famously, 3 to 3.5, there were things, there were some broken things in there. And I don't remember mm-hmm. what they were. But they changed them. They got rid of it and made it better. So because people actually, they all the playtesting they did for 3.0, which was very extensive, real people went out there and played and said, you know, this doesn't work and that doesn't work, and they changed it.
1: So rules is written, I don't know, but it really exists. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you do your best, and, and I think, but that, that's the one thing, you know, I mean, there's several things in AD&D that I wouldn't use If I was running the game and I wasn't trying to use them all, like I wouldn't use the chance per month of catching a disease. Like, I just feel like that's not fun for me. But, you know, hey, if that's the game you want to play, uh, you know, that's just not something I would use. But things I would use, psionics. I love psionics. Uh, I love the hand-to-hand combat. I, I love how weird and clunky it is. It's so awesome. But that's me. I always use the floozy table because yes, that terrible. always gets people, they know exactly what my game's about. It's the first thing you roll on. It's like you roll up your character and then this is, you know, this is the floozy that you start with. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I get that that's, you know, that can come off very badly. So I, I do understand that for some people. But uh, I think it's a funny, uh, you know, a little funny joke in the back of the book. And you have to take the, the AD&D for what it is, right? It's right in 1978. There's going to be jokes that certainly wouldn't fly today, and we have to understand that that's, that's what it is. Don't use the floozy table because that's just silly, unless your players like silly stuff and they want to, they, they think it's funny. You know, don't drop that and on somebody. And there are
0: a lot of younger players that I've run into in my 5e world where they'd love that kind of thing. They think it's hilarious. Yeah. So And there's a certain innocence to it, and uh, certainly they've seen movies where we have what would be called a floozy who are part of the storyline and they present them and they have their own inner lives and stuff, you know, they're not so dehumanized. So, but whatever. I mean, again, this is what always happens. You have a table like that and then we start to analyze what's the socio. Well, you know. And what's fun impact. about it,
1: what I love about that, the, like some of the tables in the dungeon Guide is how crazily like varied they are. Right. Cause you could roll on that. Like one time I remember that I was reading through the dungeon master guide and I brought it to my fifth edition group. And at a show, I'm like, oh, look at this silly table in the back or whatever. And I have females in my group. So they were all laughing at it. They're, oh, my God. This so we have to use this. So, of course, we went to town. And we're like, all right, let's see who's in this place. And we rolled on it. And, like, you get everything from, like, the most, you know, oh, street corner or whatever, all the way to, like, fancy madam or whatever. It's, like, just by a roll of an eye. And it's, like, how does that make any sense that, like, one would be this and one would be that? So it's just silly. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's definitely not something you're going to use in play. You know, somebody yeah, tell and- me now. Call it and tell me rules is written people use that table. <laughs> yeah
0: that's the most infamous or whatever but there's some other ones in there and again the desire Mm -hmm. to codify to okay we have all these questions we're gonna put together all these tables and it created something where although having not played i wish i had played ad and d when i was like 12 because that would be (laughs) interesting because we were doing the box set we were doing the yeah. All these people that had already played it had all these charts and everything they'd made up for the holes in the mm-hmm. system. So I never really played the box set as written. Oh, yeah. So no, it would we, be we...
1: fascinating to just go through that and
0: play it just like, here it is. Here's the game. Play it. Well, yeah. And, and, I, and I as never had kids, that
1: a chance. You know, as kids, we played AD&D as close as possible as we possibly could to the way it was written because that's what we thought we needed to do. I mean, we were kids. And we were, these are the rules that we do. And we never had a problem with it. It definitely works. I'm sure we didn't play it perfectly. A lot of people say they didn't use most of it, but we did. Because again, we had time. We were 12 years old and we were like, oh, let's roll on all these tables and see what happens. Because it's a Saturday and it's raining and there's nothing else to do, right? So there wasn't all the stuff that that you could do today. There wasn't the internet and all that stuff. So I think that that it definitely filled my young mind with certain things. <laughs> you know, all the tables, <laughs> not just that one. <laughs> and and I, I give ADD a lot of credit. I really like the, the system. I just like to give Jason a hard time about it. Yep. But believe it or not, that's all the calls. So on the first uh, call-in show of uh, 2024, I think we made it successfully. Cool. We do have two emails from, uh, one is from an AI company that wants us to use AI for our podcast. <laughs> so you may well, maybe a third host I, next time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's call him Robbie Hello. the Robot. <laughs> hey, bot, what do you
0: think of this? The rule says that you must do this. I don't know
1: rules is written bot. We should work on that. That could yeah. be our next uh, <laughs> yes. our big project. Thanks for listening, and thanks to all our callers. If you'd like to hear your voice on the show, give us a call. You can find all the ways to do that in the show notes. If you'd like to see more RPG content from us, you can find us both on YouTube, KR at DD Homebrew, and myself at Bandits Keep. Those are also linked in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, please give us a rating, ideally on Apple Podcasts, as it helps the show be seen by more people. And we'll see you next week.